Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Testing, testing, trying to not put it next to my mouth. Ha, ha. This is going to be a good recording. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And today we are bringing you the fourth episode of our season on fans and fandoms in which Rochelle, aka After3 on Twitter, and I went and visited the Warner Brothers Harry Potter studio tour outside Watford Junction. Sexy! Which is outside of London. You might remember Rochelle from our mini-sode about marketing in our last season. Who knows what episode number it was because they were absurdly numbered. Who can tell? You'll just have to listen to them all to find out. (laughs) Rochelle is a very brilliant and very lovely human being who has recently relocated to the UK and in her new status as a English person English lady English lady as an English lady um, was tremendously helpful during my visit to London she organized and facilitated the London witch please meetup and then also like set up and helped me to plan our visit to the Warner Brothers studio which was absolutely delightful and you're gonna hear the many thoughts that we had about that visit. Rochelle also snuck a portable audio recorder in, and so you're also going to hear some little bits of recorded audio from when we're there as well. Tell me a little bit about what it meant to you as a fan of the Harry Potter franchise to go on the studio tour. This is the first time I have ever 
sought out something like this sort of via the experience of fandom going on the studio tour is the thing that has most reproduced for me my childhood memories of what harry potter meant to me um it's the closest i have ever come to like actually viscerally feeling what i felt when i read the books and watched the movies for the first time which is like the visceral almost painful desire to be in this world Mm -hmm. and that isn't something that has really like come back to me via our rereading of the books and our talking about them lots of other kinds of pleasure have undeniably but like that very particular sort of bittersweet desire like the the almost pain of reading that I remember from being a young reader which is I just wanted to go inside these books so badly that it injured me that I couldn't and that like there was something about you know standing in those sets that brought that feeling back to me that speaks to me I understand what you mean by that was it everything that you imagined it was going to be like you must have had some idea uh heading heading into it of what it would be like so how did the actual experience of of walking through the studio tour live up to your expectations it was both more and less than I had expected so so I think I was primed in the same way that you will be primed whenever you will go by um the very bad uh traveling tour that we both went to um in edmonton that was like a very very small selection of the stuff that they have in the full studio tour that was like a lot of neat things and then a disappointing gift shop and ultimately the studio tour is way way more neat things and a less disappointing gift shop (laughs) Still, ultimately, we will talk about this in the episode, but ultimately, the gift shop ends up being, by definition, a bit disappointing because they're not selling you the props. Of course. Yeah, of course. You know how the 10th Doctor always refers to how he loves a little shop? No one has ever articulated in such a perfect way how I feel about gift shops quite so much as... I love a little shop. So so on the subject of the gift shop, uh, there was a, a, a Twitter follower who asked us to talk about something in particular in the, in the gift shop that you and Rochelle don't talk about in the episode. So do you want to just address that person's question? Yeah, somebody asked me to um, mention a really troubling thing that they sell in the gift shop, which is that they sell little reproductions of the Jamaican shrunken head from... Uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban that you can hang on your own rearview mirror. Um, You shouldn't. Let's just start with that. Uh, Don't. Don't buy that. Don't buy it and destroy it because from the bottom line perspective, they'll think that means keep keep making them. Uh, If you see somebody else pick one up, um, suggest to them that they don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe just have a quick intervention. Uh, I think the best thing that we can do, maybe... Maybe if you're still feeling, you know, after the Tri Witch's second task, you're still feeling in the mood to write letters, maybe write a letter to Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. and explain to them why they should take these heads out of their shops. In case you are not quite sure how to articulate that to them, um, you can 
just explain to them that it is a offensive racialized stereotype and that um, turning stereotypes of people of color into objects that are available in a gift shop participates in a long history of violence and representation, particularly of black people, and that they really, they really should just take those heads right out of their shop. So maybe, maybe, maybe go ahead and write that letter. But uh, yeah, Rochelle and I don't get into it as an aspect of the shop. They have no business being there. That character had no business being in that movie. But don't double down on your shitty racism, Warner Brothers. What did you buy? Uh, I bought for you a um, Hedwig t-shirt. Can I just tell you that every time I wear that shirt, my child, Elliot, one of his first words is owl and he points at it and he says owl and it's so cute it makes me angry oh there were some other things i considered there were some really beautiful wand necklaces that were like small silver reproductions of some characters wands as charms um there was also quite a beautiful reproduction time turner necklace which i considered i do love me a time turner necklace Um, I also feel like in another life, I might become a person who collects more wands. I currently have two. I love Tonks' wand a lot. Um, I can see myself being somebody who gets some more wands at some point down the road. But, uh, you know, I'm going to buy a TV first. (laughs) Hold out. I have some other adult purchases to make before I uh, buy my third wand. Tell me about the like sensory experience of walking through the studio tour, because one thing that I remember about the traveling exhibit that came to the TELUS World of Science was that there were little snippets of it that were very like a thrilling sensory overload for for a moment. Like when when we got to sit in Hagrid's chair, for example, or like where they had the the Yule Ball costumes and and that kind of thing so like what what was that like there were bits of it that definitely felt sort of evocative in that way it's such a carefully curated and crafted space and the number one moment that they have so carefully constructed as the climax of your studio tour is the room in which they have the um, Hogwarts filming model that they actually continue continued to reconstruct and adjust when new movies happened and new parts of Hogwarts were added. So it is the closest to a real Hogwarts that exists anywhere. Mm-hmm. And they have like the lighting in that room is incredible. And there's this music playing when you walk into that room and the music is telling you we recorded some of it so you'll hear it in the episode but the music is telling you like this is special (laughs) like a special thing is happening and it worked on me i got goosebumps it's absolutely beautiful and um fucking love a miniature Oh, the degree to which I adore a miniature. So that was very, very pleasing to me. (laughs) It's like the ability to just look at a very small Hogwarts and be like, it's all here. I see it. But that was not the same. Like that was a thrilling moment for sure. But it was in Diagon Alley where I had the like bittersweet, like I wish that I could be in this world because looking down at 
the Hogwarts model, it's amazing, but you are looking down at a miniature. And that's not the same as actually stepping into one of those spaces and feeling like, oh, I'm here. I did it. I'm in Diagon Alley. Just all the shops are closed right now, but I'll come back when they're open and then I can buy an owl. I can't. I can't. It's not real. I really, really want to go to the Universal Studios theme park. So much. I was thinking about that and and I was actually going to ask you like how you feel about the fact that this isn't a theme park. It is immersive in some ways, but you don't lose yourself in the world. The the yeah, spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah, spaghetti. Spaghetti. So, yeah, we should do a field trip to Orlando Studios. Yeah. We like I know it's hard cuz you're doing a PhD and have a toddler, but could you just prioritize that as the next goal in your life please hey 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 everybody please go start a kickstarter (laughs) please please could you start a gofundme send us to the theme park but yeah i mean the studio tour is about the making of the movies and So as much as it is about these immersive moments, it's much more about the technical craft and skill of movie making. So it's actually quite at odds with the immersive desire. It's meant to pull you back out of the world and show you how things work Mm -hmm. and have you go like, oh, that's so cool. Oh, isn't that amazing the way you did that? Isn't that so cool to see the invisibility cloak and see that it's lined with green? For green screening. Green screen, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And those moments that you have where you're like, oh, of course. Oh, that's so neat. Oh, look at this. Like, they never built a fourth wall for this room because the cameras have to go somewhere. So there's a lot of those like, oh, that's so neat moments. But minimal, oh, here I am in this world moments. But as a fan, what I want even more than what the studio tour gave me, I want immersion. Like... I feel like I can picture myself paying for like a week long go to Hogwarts, get sorted into a house, sleep in a tower, go to potions class. I can actually see a version like the same, maybe the same version of Hannah that collects wands. I can see a version of me also paying thousands of dollars to go to a Harry Potter land. And even as I say it, there is this part of me, this like serious academic part of me that cringes at it. That's like, well, that's very silly. Like, that's what a silly thing to do. But I want it. I want to be in that world. You'll hear on the episode, but um, I did have an interesting conversation with the woman in the cloakroom who really wanted to insist that the studio tour itself was such an immersive space and that I had really been in Diagon Alley, quote unquote. And I was like, well, no, I wasn't because Diagon Alley is not real. And she was like, yeah, no, that was it. That was the real Diagon Alley. And I was like, well, Diagon Alley is not real, though. And she was like, well, but that's like, that's it. That's the one you see in the movies. And I was like, yeah, I recognize that it's the original set, but there's no such thing as Diagon Alley. And she was like, of course there is. You were just in it. And I was like, 
we're having a very confusing conversation. I think we have collectively lost track of what constitutes reality. This reminds me of when professor and scholar extraordinaire Cecily Devereaux described going to Green Gables in Prince Edward Island Mm -hmm. and saying, yeah, this is where a person who never lived never lived. (laughs) So the conversation that you were having with this, with the cloakroom person, you were like, no, Anne isn't a real person. And so that house is not the place where Anne lived. Moreover, Lucy Maud Montgomery didn't live in that house. Like that's a, that's the house where the person who never lived, never lived. And, (laughs) and she's like, no, Green Gables is real. You can go there. It's like, Yes, but it's not real. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, it is. I'm not saying that that house doesn't exist. I'm saying that 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 fiction is not the same. Oh, yes, we got. hmm, Yeah, yeah. Would you go back? Like, is it the kind of thing that you would pay money to go to again? I don't think so. No, No, I think having seen it once was enough times to see it. Um, It doesn't feel like... Um, the kind of experience or space where you can do it differently on a different time or like you don't miss stuff. You sort of go through, you see everything. They actively encourage you to take lots and lots and lots of pictures. So I have lots and lots and lots of pictures, which will be shared as a gallery on the uh, ca website. I in no way regret having gone once. Like it was really, really fun. Um, but I don't have a strong desire to go back. Uh, that said, it was Rochelle's first time. And she, like, as we were finishing it, she was talking about going back. And she was talking specifically about going back with a better camera. Oh. Um, because she wanted to get even better images yeah. of of some of the stuff that we saw. So I can imagine why people would want to go back and spend more time looking at the things because the objects and images in there are remarkable and maybe you know maybe in 10 years i would want to revisit it but right now i feel like i had an amazing time i loved getting to see it i don't have a very strong desire to revisit it well listen let's go there now (laughs) yeah Yeah, if you want to introduce yourself then we can get into the meat of it uh, my name is Michelle Saunders, and I am a web developer and a sometimes podcaster, oftentimes podcaster uh, of the podcast Science for the People, uh, with an interest in, obviously, Harry Potter, um, marketing, online things, all kinds of stuff. I have little little calling cards that say I'm endlessly interested in everything, which is not entirely true, but it's mostly true. <laughs> I would like, just real quick, I would like to hear three things you aren't interested in trains don't interest me at all Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because sometimes my significant other likes to talk trains Mm, trains why do men like trains i don't know it's i just smile and nod and let him talk about trains because it makes him really happy okay well that's love that's that's the price i'm willing to pay (laughs) to listen to someone talk about trains And uh, if anybody remembers the last time I was on the show, I passionately don't like Tim Horton's coffee. Oh, yeah, that's coffee at Tim Horton's is garbage. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And having alienated half our listenership. (laughs) So, Rochelle, you have recently relocated to the UK. I have indeed. Mm. I uh, 
started out living in Edmonton, then I moved to the greater Toronto area for a while, and now I'm in the UK, uh, close to Birmingham. Fantastic. And as a result of your proximity to London, you both, um, I was about to say, helped me organize the Witch Please Meetup in London, but by helped me, I mean did all of it 100%, and then I showed up. Hooray! And also uh, joined me on the Warner Brothers Harry Potter Studio Tour. What's the actual name of it? I think it's just the Harry Potter Studio Tour, actually. Great. Featuring Warner Brothers. Wait. Featuring Warner Brothers, yes. <laughs> yeah. Starring yeah. Warner Brothers. Yeah. And it was, it was, it kind of ended up being in some ways a pretty perfect um sequel to the episode that you already did which is the episode about harry potter and branding because the studio tour is nothing if not an extended exercise in the branding of harry potter it is very true and they do have a marvelous gift shop Mm -hmm. so we went two weeks ago um at the time we had nowhere to record and we didn't want we considered we seriously considered just recording in a pub and then we thought this will be unlistenable uh so um I have some very thorough notes here um, that I will use to jog our memories whenever necessary. But we're just going to sort of go through and talk about our impressions of the tour, anything that struck us, how it's structured, and sort of what it tells us about the branding of Harry Potter that um, you hadn't already figured out. I'm sure there are many things that I haven't already figured (laughs) out. I don't actually feel like there's anything about the tour that... Um, contradicted your theories about Harry Potter and branding as expressed in the previous episode. Well, thank you. I would not claim the theories as entirely my own, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's good to you, know that they aren't completely out of left field. You voice them, so as far as I'm concerned, they're yours. <laughs> they're mine now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I don't know. Oh, I want to. I want to start off by telling this very brief story, which is um, we both came in from London, but I think we arrived differently. Yeah, because you were coming in from central London and I was coming in from west London. Yeah, so I took this train, I took some like a light rail train that took me to Watford Junction. And uh, as I was gathering my stuff at my stop, the voice announcement came on, which said, you know, next stop is Watford Junction. And then there was this little message that said, you know, something along the lines of um, any witches and wizards heading to Diagon Alley. You know, this is your stop. Make sure that you bring all of your owls and broomsticks. You'll get picked up by the night. But it was like this hilarious thematic announcement that, I don't know, I guess the British rail system does voluntarily as a tourism thing, but it was hella cute. I am interested to know if like Warner Brothers paid to have that little advertisement there or if maybe there was like a usability problem where people who weren't sure which stop to get off on in order to get to the Harry Potter studio tour like complained or something. I'm interested to know like what that what prompted that. Like if it was just usability all they'd have to do was say this is also the stop for the Harry Potter studio tour. But they like it was like deep in fiction. It was so cute. <laughs> it was so cute too because it was like the same voice of the guy who does all of the, like, all of the recordings. So it was just like this really sort of straightforward. It wasn't. There was no soundtrack or like whimsical effects. It was just like super straightforward. 
um i was charmed so uh from there you take a um a double-decker bus to the actual studio which is out in the middle of nowhere and which was disappointingly not painted like the night bus it's true. It had advertisements. It was clearly the bus and the to the studio tour, and that's the only place it went. Like yeah. it wasn't like it was just a, a typical like double decker red London bus. It was. It had one purpose very clearly. Yes, but it was not the night bus. I do feel like they missed a tick there. I just it like why why not? <laughs> well, I can tell you probably why not. Tell me why not. <laughs> That's because uh, the night bus, a big purple bus just driving around, does not act as a mobile billboard in the same mm. way that having Warner Brothers Harry Potter Studio mm-hmm. Tour acts mm-hmm. as a brilliant billboard. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a very good point. I'm still disappointed. Uh, I'm totally disappointed. <laughs> Do we want to talk briefly about the very strange video on the bus? <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about the video. Uh-huh, yeah. I think this whole day is just like permanently etched in my memory. But um and then this video comes on while we're on the bus that I think is to it's just preparing you for sort of the next steps when you arrive. So like you're going to go through, there's a place to get coffee, you can't bring the coffee in, your ticket is timed, go up at the right time, somebody will take your ticket. Like it's just sort of walking you through what things are going to be like so you I guess so that you don't get there and just feel confused and disoriented but um every British person in that video was smiling more than the sum total I have seen British people smile ever before in my life it's very true it was weird they were weirdly happy and Mm -hmm. like the sort of fake happy that I am not used to seeing from British people it was very disnified and it really made me think about how much this um the studio tour which is functionally a branded museum is trying to frame itself as an amusement park or as a theme park yeah which was really interesting because that experience of an amusement park didn't really translate through the rest of the tour it Mm -hmm. was like there was the video kind of amusement park and some of the people um, that you talk to on the front end before you actually go into the studio spaces kind of had the same sort of feel. But for such a like Disneylandified intro, once you get into the space, I mean, I guess we didn't really actually talk to that many people in the space itself. I but... think we talked to as many people as it was humanly possible to talk to in that space. Yeah, which was two? Maybe three. Maybe three. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I think you and I probably talked more to the people in that space than they are used to being talked to. Yes, and it was I would agree with you. a very small number of interactions. I did have when we went to the uh, the uh, cloakroom and we were giving our stuff in, and I was chatting with the woman there, and I asked her how her day was going, and she said, "You know, it's going pretty good." And I said, "Yeah, you know, on a scale of one to ten, where would you put it? Like a like a five? And she said. I would put it at a nine and three quarters. And I was like, <laughs> boo. Boo. <laughs> Not interested in your brand specific banter, ma'am. Uh. <laughs> anyway, so the first thing that we did was check out the gift shop. That's true, because we were there a little bit early and uh, <laughs> they very cleverly have put the gift shop at both... So you access it at both the beginning and the end 
of your tour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm really glad that we ended up having the time to do it at both ends because we had this really um, interesting experience where um, I would say, and I think, I think you expressed the same thing. The gift shop seems a lot better at the beginning of the tour than it does at the end. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when we first went into it, I think we were both pretty impressed. It's a really, I mean, it's the first time I've, mm, no, that's a lie. It's the second time I've had access to Harry Potter branded stuff. So the first time was the gift shop after the, um, like the touring version of this exhibit. I think I went with Marcel Gould. That might be a lie. Anyway, whoever, I know Marcel also went and uh, we both came out with the experience. You know, you go through that whole thing and damn if these tours don't make you feel acquisitive as fuck. You just want to own the beautiful things that you just saw and with the traveling exhibit we got through to the end and it was like you know there were like two wands and really really limited like some house scarves and then just a lot of like keychains and magnets and just I mean boxes of birdie bots ever flavor beans like just shit that we didn't want I think we neither of us bought anything and it was like I was really primed to spend a bunch of money And this gift shop has a lot of beautiful stuff in it. Yeah, this gift shop had a really wide variety of stuff. And what impressed me was actually overall both the quality of the stuff, Mm -hmm. which I kind of expected from a Harry Potter gift shop because quality is so important to the Harry Potter brand. So it wasn't like that part really surprised me. But what surprised me in conjunction with that was how not ridiculous some of the pricing was. I mean, it was expensive, but not shockingly expensive, which surprised me. I expected to have to pay more money. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think we were both struck by how not marked up some things seemed like, oh, yeah, I would pay almost this much for a sweater that wasn't branded and I am willing to pay the extra 10 pounds for the fact that it is branded like it just didn't seem exorbitant yeah and there was a nice selection and range of stuff so it definitely feels like someone spent the time to think about the gift shop not just from a quality standpoint but also from a at every price point we want to have something that someone might like to take home so even if you come in here and you've only got like 15 pounds to spend in your budget There's actually some cool stuff there that you can get. There's some interesting, thoughtful additions. So things like um, the the art cards. You can get packs Mm -hmm. of art cards, which would look amazing in some frames on somebody's wall. Like that's something that doesn't cost a lot, but you can take home and with just very little DIY, you can make it look really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's such a smart thing because... I mean, that that approach to merchandising where you want to be able to capture the largest possible slice of visitors. Ideally, they want to capture 100% of their visitors. And so you're going to have, you know, really small, like a really nice candy section that's all got nicely designed wrappers that are thematically appropriate, but are just basically like a chocolate bar, you know? So if you've gone with kids and you know they want something and you want to be able to leave there and only spend five pounds you can get your kids a couple of chocolate bars. But also if, you know, somebody has traveled halfway around the world for this experience and this is their one chance and they're a huge Harry Potter fan, like there's some beautiful stuff, you know, reproductions of wands, really, really nice time turner reproductions, like high quality stuffed toys, high quality clothes, 
and like a huge range of clothes, like um, across genders, across sizes, across age appropriateness, like just really sort of doing their best, I would say, to ensure that if you have any money to spend, you are going to find something you want here. I was definitely impressed by the range of clothing sizes. They had everything from small stuff for kids, like really small kids, right up to like XXL sizes for adults. And that is something you don't see in merch shops. Usually you get small, medium, large. That's it. And if you don't fit into those size ranges, tough luck for you. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Which is why I often do not leave with an article of clothing because I won't fit into the size ranges that are available. And instead... I left with a sweater that I have worn almost constantly since because, as it turns out, Dublin gets a bit cold at night and I didn't pack accordingly. But I own a beautiful, secretly Harry Potter-themed cardigan now that I've already worn the hell out of. (laughs) I am so happy that you bought the Neville Battle cardigan. Oh my god, me too. Because you know what you really, really, what I personally want in my branded merch is subtlety. Yes. I want something that's going to feel special and exciting for me and that maybe will register to other fans, but that isn't like the wizarding world of Harry Potter in shiny gold lettering on a t-shirt. Like, I really like that too. I bought one of the house cardigans, the the Slytherin one. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's just a gray cardigan with really subtle green striping around it. I've been wearing it around. Nobody comments on it. It's just not something you really notice if you're not kind of dressed up in mm-hmm. the full Harry Potter look. Mm-hmm. But it is. It's it's nice. It's a good quality sweater. It's actually really cozy. So I wear it a lot when I work. Yep. Um, it's again, like it's it's just nice to be able to take those things and not necessarily, especially in business sense, like I wore this to my work meetings. Mm-hmm. Nobody noticed. Nobody cared. Oh, God. It just occurred to me that I can go as Neville for Halloween this year. Yay. What a great revelation. (laughs) Oh, I'm doing it so hard. Anyway. So then there was a series of cues. (laughs) Why why do the why do the fine people of England like queuing so much? I don't know, but they certainly really like a good cue and they don't they don't leave any cue uncued. For God's sakes. But you queue first to get your ticket taken and they bring people they sort of release people into the tour in packs it's not a guided tour all the way through and so they're very careful about sort of um timing the i don't know the that's what i'm gonna say the release of people Um, no it's true it is it is essentially you're grouped into groups of probably around 100 150 people Mm -hmm. and released in in sort of time bunches and the first um three stages of the tour are very carefully timed which Mm -hmm. is quite clever by them you don't Mm -hmm. you're not always sort of consciously aware that that's what they're doing Mm -hmm. um, but that's clearly what they're doing they're sort of staging people in to space people out so they've someone's thought very carefully or timed the people as they walk through certain phases so that they can space uh, the traffic out which is great because it means that for us we weren't ever in a group of so many people that we couldn't see the things we wanted to see without just kind of walking up to them like we weren't sort of at the back of a line waiting to see the next thing. You just kind of wandered around at your own pace. There were people around, but there were never so many people that you felt um, that you felt you were in a crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they've they've timed it well and they've um, they've structured it to ensure that it never feels too crowded. I'm not sure if I agree with you that you don't notice because I felt 
like we were being herded like sheep in those first few <laughs> stages. They bring you into one particular room where there is a friendly man who tells you a couple of rules and then shows you a dumb video. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, the doors are now closing. So that means you are in this room with me now for the next five hours. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> Not really. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warner Brothers Studio Tour London, the making of Harry Potter. My name is Ian, it's my great pleasure to welcome you. Now, I can't get this tour started before I've asked you a couple of questions. So, here we go. Do I have any Harry Potter fans here today? Yeah. Excellent, that's what we'd like to hear. Do I have any people here who have been dragged along by Harry Potter fans? And then they, they heard you into another room with chairs where you sit down and watch another video. We're at video number three at this point. Video number three is our sort of three original stars talking to us, probably the only video that had actual value, talking about, you know, how important the behind-the-scenes people were and the sort of building of this world. And um, as it turns out, the entire point of video number three is that they're standing in front of the door to the Great Hall while they talk, and then they say... Uh, and now, you know, follow us into this world. And they open the door and walk through. And then the screen lifts up and the door is there. That was very exciting. So it was like, cool. So then you all go and gather around the door and they open. And it opens into the Great Hall, the complete set of the Great Hall. And that's the only part of the tour where there is a tour guide who is describing stuff to you. And again, I think his function there is primarily to slow us down. Um, yes. To try to absolutely. keep us in that space for a little bit longer so that they can ensure that people don't get too crowded. Alrighty, now that's all left for us to do is me and my birthday helper to welcome you with the words that Harry first heard when he came to the castle. Welcome to Hogwarts. Now it stood for 10 years on soundstage B on the studio side before being taken down and brought over here, lovingly built up again brick by brick for you to experience it today. Now the lights are low, the tables are set, the fires are burning, which means that this in the industry is what we call a hot set. That means it is absolutely perfect for photos yeah, it, or it, videos. It's a really smart way to start that tour to purposefully space people out because mm -hmm. um, it made, I think, the rest of the tour much more enjoyable to not feel like you were in a pack of people mm -hmm. um, and kind of gives you this like passive permission to slow down mm. and like just look as long as you like and look at those details and take lots of pictures. Mm -hmm. um, they've definitely like are all over encouraging you to take as many pictures as you want, both in providing time to take photos, mm -hmm. but also they have lit everything in that space so mm -hmm. gorgeously. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's really, I hadn't thought of that as like what that guy's function was, but you're absolutely right. Like he's modeling to you how to engage with the rest of what you're going to see. So like one of the earliest things he said is, you know, I know you haven't been in this room long, but hopefully you're already noticing some of the little details that you might never have seen on screen. 
First of all, the murals on the front and back oh of gosh. the horse. Oh my gosh, totally These didn't notice that the, actually the emblems of the animals. Ah, so like really encouraging you to like pause and look at things and you know, oh, you may not have seen this. Make a point of looking at that. And again, as you said, emphasis on taking pictures and that is expressed in the lighting, in the staging of different scenes, in the fact that it's not so crowded that you can't get in there. So what do you make of that? What do you make of all of their emphasis on creating a space in which people can take lots and lots and lots of pictures? I think it's just that they realize, somebody along the way realized that they have the perfect opportunity because they're a film studio space. They Mm. know how to light things, so they look gorgeous. And also that it's great social media right like Mm -hmm. we were how many times were we encouraged to share those photos and tag them with their approved hashtag (laughs) so that they could find them and retweet them like they definitely definitely want you to take photos and absolutely want you want you to put them on social media to try and pull more people in yeah and everything is so gorgeously lit for photos Mm -hmm. um and in many cases lit in the same way that they lit those scenes uh, where the the sets are from, which is just a, a great way to be able to take the photos as well, because it you kind of are then taking photos of Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to get into this a little bit more later on, but I do think that there's a real attempt to convince you that you are visiting Hogwarts um, mm. in all kinds of ways, and that includes, you know, creating the opportunity for you to take photos as you say that look like the photos you would take were you actually there so that in your own recorded memories you can look back and see these beautiful high quality well-lit images that sort of let you imagine like sort of let you re-remember that experience as having been a highly immersive one which Mm -hmm. is interesting because of the photos Okay, I'm arriving at a theory here. (gasps) They are showing you things that in real life don't look exactly right because you have encountered them previously mediated by a camera. And so they are encouraging you to also mediate what you're looking at through a camera so it will look right again. That I think uh, you have are actually saying exactly what yes basically (laughs) (laughs) because i mean i i did work in theater uh Mm -hmm. that's what my diploma is in that's what i um, i did for a couple of years until i ended up getting into the internet and kind of sidestepping into a different career what you realize if you spend any time working in theater is how fake everything actually is in Mm -hmm. theater in particular you notice it when you work on the props and things because there's a it's like a 20-foot rule everything has to look good from 20 feet away yeah um so nothing has to look good close up it's all it's all designed to be seen from afar and as soon as you you come in close and see it a closer up or b in the harsh light of day it suddenly loses a lot of its realism but if you sit back in the seats and everything's lit beautifully it manages to create this amazing world i think you're right i think there is something about viewing these spaces through the lens of the camera that actually makes them more real Mm -hmm. uh, to our brains Mm -hmm. including the fact that you yourself can do the same thing that the video camera would do which is cut off the edges Mm-hmm. You know, where that set ends. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, and it's really, it's really quite interesting because in most of the sets there, they are, you can get quite close to them, but the scenes are isolated from you. So you can't mm-hmm. necessarily go into most of them mm-hmm. and walk around and touch things and pick things up. And and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that they obviously want to keep the the sets and the props in good condition. So the less they're handled, the longer they'll they'll stick. A lot of movie set stuff isn't designed to last forever. Not so built to last. No, no, that's not generally what happens with it. Um, so that's part of it. But I think the other part is also you get such gorgeous pictures because there's no people in the way, right? Mm-hmm. You can always take an amazing photo of those sets because you can get close enough that the camera can cut around the edges where mm-hmm. the real world is. But you also don't have to sort of navigate around people. Like, I don't think there's any photo that I took that has a person in it that isn't a selfie that I took. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm flipping through my photos right now and it's like, okay, we I took a picture of us in the mirror of Erised and that has some other people in it because... It's a mirror. It's a mirror. <laughs> that's, how, that's how those work. But other than that, I mean, I've done exactly what I'm describing, right? I took pictures that were sort of closed in on different scenes and there's no people in any of them like it was always possible to sort of get to the front get up right next to the thing and just take a picture of that particular scene you know the the Gryffindor common room Dumbledore's office like these these sort of setup scenes that you know in the moment didn't feel that immersive because as you say I couldn't walk into them but the fact that people couldn't walk into them means I got those great pictures well, it's interesting, too, because they it both forces it both gives you these beautiful pictures, but it also keeps you at a distance, which is what sets are meant to be seen at. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about the Dumbledore's office set, which was one of the few sets we were able to kind of walk into mm-hmm. partway before we hit the kind of rope of distance. If, <laughs> Not metaphorically, you walk around, literally. Yeah. <laughs> the like rope of no yeah. rope of no more. Um, <laughs> But as you walk around the edges, you were able to kind of look into into the sort of cupboards and stuff. And I remember thinking like, oh, this, you know, this is classic prop work. This is like theater prop stuff. And I think those props behind those glass, all sort of Dumbledore's bits and pieces, all mm-hmm. his, his supposedly magical instruments. Which were like five generic shapes repeated a bunch of times. Yeah, but I noticed that because I was able to look up close and mm-hmm. see some of the extra detail that while you're encouraged to look at detail, you're also kept at a distance from it. So Mm. you're sort of kept at like the optimal viewing distance for a lot of this stuff. So the other interesting aspect of the stage scenes was that, um, so there's like, you kind of, as you're going through the tour, you move back and forth between sort of staged particular sets and then just like, props where you just get to look at the actual craftsmanship of the thing itself um or like a little area about like print design and typography a little area about special effects and cgi like little themed areas or certain or certain props that have specific details that you need to see up close yeah exactly things that sort of uh, reward closer 
viewing. Oh, look at just like a big pile of stuff. Yeah. Here's a oh my gosh, they have like a, a house elf suit of armor. Uh-huh. That's cool. <laughs> Roast chicken. Oh, chicken. <laughs> a cage of gold bars. There's oh a gold God. skeleton. Oh, there's a ton of, like, just random gold stuff. Is this room of requirement stuff? Beatrix <gasps> oh, this But there were also three or four staged, not sets, but scenes from the movie that actually contained, like, specific memorable moments in the movie that were reproduced with dummies wearing the costumes of the actors so specifically there's the scene where snape arrives at malfoy manor and says hello to voldemort says hello to voldemort yeah (laughs) hey voldy how's it going hey and uh uh nagini's on the table about to eat charity burbage or something yeah charity babbage um so we've got that scene, um, and then we've got the scene where Harry and Ron first meet and are sitting in the uh, uh, in the train car. In the yes, their car. No, that's not car. No, it's like train. Uh, what are those called? Yeah, I know what you're talking. Uh, you know, room. Small, small, small train room. Just. <laughs> They've got a name. Anyway, train room <laughs> surrounded by candy. We've got that scene. And then I feel like there might have been one more. There was one that didn't have any characters in. Uh, when we went into the Dursley house, they had the living room set up mm. with the um, ex- the letters mm-hmm. uh, kind of strung up as if they had just exploded from the chimney. Yeah. Yeah. And those scenes, like now that we've been sort of talking about the photographic possibilities, I'm really thinking about how those scenes really are about just sort of giving you an opportunity to recreate photographically like an actual scene from the movie as though to be able to say like I was there in that scene from the movie which is Mm -hmm. hilarious because that's impossible (laughs) yeah it was so like I keep I keep thinking back to this weird interaction I had with that same platform nine and three quarters lady the the woman working in the cloakroom platform nine and three quarters lady sorry at the end when i was talking about how you know there were a couple of moments in this tour where i really did get this sort of this shiver of delight that was a sort of reminiscence of how magical these movies felt for me the first time i saw them and she said well you know and it's it's amazing because you were actually there like now you actually got to be there i was like well, no, I didn't because like Diagon Alley is not real. And she's like, no, that's the real Diagon Alley. Like that's where the actors walked. And I was like, no, I know. I know that's the real one that appeared on film, but Diagon Alley's not real. <laughs> I can't <laughs> visit it. And that's like, that's sort of the thing that really struck me about those scenes is that they're sort of trying to reproduce as real something that was only ever a representation of a fantastical world. Yeah, it's interesting because they do really emphasize a lot, especially at the beginning of this tour, how real everything is. Mm-hmm. This is the real thing. These are the real yeah. sets. These you are, are the walking on the same flagstones that all of these characters walked on. Yeah, it it is interesting how the 
real world of Harry Potter in this context is is the set and how they're trying to make that be like the real place Mm -hmm. and there is a lot of emphasis placed on that that's Mm -hmm. for sure and it it is in some cases it feels as real as you can get it right like you walk into Diagon Alley and that space in particular feels Mm. a type of real that I don't know that any of the other spaces quite did because you can walk through it you can walk walk through it down the alley yeah, you can walk through it and it feels, it just feels like you're walking through a closed street, mm-hmm. right? You're there after hours, it's closed because the shops close, so there's like a, a plausible reason you can't yeah. go in. Um, and it's not until you sort of like look too closely at the, you know, the menagerie places and see that it's all kind of stuffed animals that are mm-hmm. that are filling the cages and things. But it does it is it does feel like a real place and they've done such a great job um for set reasons and for film reasons of even the little alleys they've got these little alleys that go around corners and they've they've built them in such a way that they kind of twist around so unless you walk down the alley a little bit you can't really you don't sort of see the end of the set so the mm-hmm. set's kind of kind of magically disappear and it is very easy in that space to think that there is more down that alley. Like you could explore mm-hmm. it, like you could explore the the back streets of London. Mm-hmm. You know, the few didactic panels there were, and there weren't many at all. No, there weren't the, many. The few that there were really were about emphasizing process, you know, ones that mm-hmm. explained how to make a realistic looking tree or a realistic looking brick wall, how the painting worked for those things. Um, the explanation in the CGI sections, you know, the, the, the one place, two places that there were humans set up to answer questions. One was a guy who could show you how different uh, practical effects in the movie worked. So things that looked like they were CGI, but were actually moving parts and uh, another guy set up in the um, architectural drawings room. And both of those people seem to be there to sort of answer some of the more technical questions about how stuff was done. But there was a real emphasis on not on maintaining the magic, but on sort of unpacking it and, and really helping you to understand how they achieved the kinds of effects that they achieved. But I can't remember which one of the introductory videos gave us this instruction, but one of them said, you know, take lots and lots of pictures, but you're going to find out some of the secrets of the magic of Harry Potter. And so, you know, make sure not to share those so you don't spoil it for other people. Which is so interesting because like they present so many photo perfect sequences and places Mm -hmm. that you never think to take a photo of what the set looks like from the outside to take a look, you know, to I bet you there's almost no photos of of the way sets actually look if you step back from them. They're probably all those really gorgeous, you know, you've cropped that out of your photo. Um, but it's still interesting to me that they've taken pains to leave that that ugliness in, to leave that movie studio set quality in. Even, um, remember walking through the Forbidden Forest, so they have these two studio spaces with an outside bit. And at the end of the first studio space, you walk through the Forbidden Forest, which is one of the the more immersive sets where it doesn't quite, you know, you sort of walk through the space and like the floor is squishy. Forbidden Forest was the only space that was purpose built for the tour. Yeah. Everything else was part of the original filming, but they had ripped the Forbidden Forest set apart every time they filmed it. And so they decided instead to build a new custom one. So like you said, squishy floor. 
it had a, a squishy floor. So like that's not something that they would ever need to put on on camera, right? No. Um, it's hard to capture. Yeah, we had squishy floors, so that was just for us. But even that set, which was purpose built custom for that space had unfinished movie set bits. So as you walk through the end of it, that whole one side, they've cut off the trees down way through the center. So you can see how the trees are built, right? Mm-hmm. So they they walk you through this immersive place where they've sort of hidden the ceiling. You can change the light from, from night to day. They've got sound effects running so that you get the howls of the wolf or the rainstorm versus the sort of chirping birds during the day. Plus, you can turn on wind so you can get the wind machine going. Um, mm. And then you turn the corner and you're presented with the facade, right? You sort mm. of are, get, are reminded that you're in an invented, created space. Mm-hmm. And they they cut a tree and show you what's inside and how they built it. And they finish it with a panel of the different paint layers in order to build up the the look of, of tree bark, uh, the, the sort of paint mm-hmm. process that the trees yeah. go through. Yeah. And that's a really interesting, interesting thing in that space, right? To immerse you in it, make you feel like you're there, and then remind you as your last touch point with this space that it's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that sort of reminds me almost in a reverse way of the final major room you enter into. So you've just passed through you, know, you pass through Diagon Alley, which I think I think for me at least was the real um the real winner. Uh, mm. like the it was the place that gave me the most visceral like, oh my god, Diagon Alley. I wish this was real. It seems so neat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to go into these shops. I know so badly. And so then bad. you go, I mean, that's what I want in the gift shop. I think that's why when we got back to the gift shop, I was like, meh. Because what I mm. actually want is to go into the shops in Diagon Alley. Yeah, that'd be cool. And then you pass through a number of some of the most interesting behind the scenes areas for us, which was the beautiful architectural drawings mm. and the concept art and... Um, the paper models the paper models all of which all three of those things should have been available for purchase yes especially the concept art and the architectural drawings which are some of the most beautiful things i've ever seen so gorgeous but just so confusing to me that you can't buy those as posters but so you pass through those rooms and then you enter into the final room which uh spoiler if you don't want to know what you get as the final room fast forward who knows a minute maybe but you walk into the final room and it's the shooting model of Hogwarts. And it's, there's a soundtrack playing, you know, this swelling majestic music that I actually, uh, we recorded it because it was just so manipulative, I guess. <laughs> yes, that is, that is for. the word that you need. <laughs> yeah. really nice of them to do the lighting change so we can see the day versus night. We've really thought very carefully about the experience here, which is so nice. And there's the swelling music and the, um, you enter up on a sort of high level and you can walk down so you can see it from every angle and it is this moment where everything about the way it's staged is saying to you, You've done it. You finally arrived at Hogwarts. What is a fucking model? It <laughs> like, is. It's very um, small. <laughs> I mean, it's it's small, but it's huge. It's huge. 
it is that experience simultaneously of like, oh my God, I'm here. Like Mm -hmm. I can see things about this place that never got picked up on camera that are only here in this real, this real Hogwarts, which I have arrived at now while it's simultaneously due to being the wrong size, patently not real. And I think that's that, like that tension between that sort of the thrill of seeing the real thing and the simultaneous recognition that the thing is very much not real and that you're being shown the secrets of how it was made. Like that tension is a thread that weaves through the entire tour. Yeah. It's, it's really well presented and it would have been so easy for them to try and do nothing but immerse you, right? Mm-hmm. It would have been very easy to make it, like you said uh, at the beginning, a theme park experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't They didn't do that. Um, and in some cases, it looks like they even tried to show you how it's not real. I mean, that was one of the most interesting things was just how much this exhibit was about or this the whole tour was about honoring the the time and labor of the building of this world and really recognizing that making this magic come to life for you was thousands of people and thousands of hours so the very very last thing you see before exiting back into the gift shop is um olivander's wand shop but every wand box inside of it has the name of one of the people who worked on the movie written on it you know, not in any clear hierarchical order, but just acknowledging every person who worked on these movies. And it's so many people. Yeah, it's over 4,000 people. And one of the reasons I love that space was, you know, you mentioned that it's non-hierarchical. It wasn't, there were no, you know, there were, there was no kind of grouping of actors or grouping of directors. There was no J.K. Rowling wand sitting in the middle of the room. It, mm-hmm. it was very evocative of this is a project that cannot be done by one or two or three people. Mm-hmm. Even though when we think about a movie, we tend to, our minds tend to be drawn to one of three or four different people, right? If you mm-hmm. think Harry Potter, you think the three lead actors, mm-hmm. you think J.K. Rowling, and you probably think of the director. Mm-hmm. Those are the names and the people we associate with these films. But the reality is it takes 4,000 people to make these films mm-hmm. happen. And that probably doesn't include all the marketing people. Yeah, I mean, there's still a whole bunch of people involved in the delivery of the film, yeah. um, the marketing of the film that probably weren't included in those boxes so the reality actual editors probably weren't in there finance people yeah. probably oh, the accountants yeah. weren't on those boxes <laughs> <That's> probably true. <laughs> there's a whole nother layer of how movies work that they're not even beginning to get into yeah but those are just as important of layers right mm-hmm. without accountants you can't make a movie <laughs> yeah i mean movies are also businesses right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um why don't we end by talking about um, the things that we found out that we didn't know before, things that were surprising and interesting. This is another another spoiler alert. If people want to go to this and and learn these things for themselves, here would be another part to to skip through. I'm I'm in. Can Let's you, do it. Can you remember any of the things you learned that surprised you? <laughs> I'm gonna try. <laughs> <laughs> I have them written down I'm... so I can jog your memory if you want. You'll have to prompt me. Okay. Okay. So first off, I think the one that you might have brought up first was the. Uh, the architectural drawings, again, oh. specifically a detail that um, 
the the gentleman in that room pointed out to us which was you know this one copy of one of the architectural drawings for some building and it said you know this is version 1123 of this particular drawing <laughs> which means that there were over a thousand before it and yeah. who knows how many after it oh yeah so just really realizing like the architecture like fuck yeah, yeah of course somebody they need an architect needed to design these things so that they actually like worked in space and i remember thinking when we walked into that space as well i was so surprised that they thought to include that room Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's not something that when you go to a movie set, you're sort of expecting to see. And probably there's a bunch of people that maybe don't even care. But it's such a, a beautiful detail that reminds you how these things have to be conceived of mm-hmm. first. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't just they didn't just fall into the world fully formed. There was yeah. a design process. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes documentaries mm-hmm. and the extended edition DVDs is how much time they allow you to spend with the design department, right? You spend a lot of time watching before they even begin building anything, how long and how carefully and how thoughtfully they design mm-hmm. these movies and everything in them. Yeah, I'm realizing that like, you know, the architecture, the costume design, the typography and graphic design, like this is the stuff that that the movies added to the books that they did that the books, you know, the books don't care about the aesthetics of posters in the wizarding world. Right. But the, the movies movie need sure to does. care about that. Yeah. So another really um, just interesting detail is the fact that in the great hall um, where throughout most of the rest of the sets, everything is just sort of imitation, not built to last, but in the great hall on the floors, they use real flagstones. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because they built the Great Hall set once and then used it for all of the movies because they knew they would revisit it. And they knew that there would be shot after shot of huge group scenes in that space. And so recognizing how quickly people's feet wear stuff down, they put real flagstones in there. Yeah, anyone who's been on a theater stage, even a painted theater stage, uh, will know how quickly it goes from looking fabulous to looking like crap. <laughs> Once you get a cast walking on it every night for two weeks, suddenly it starts, the paint starts to rub off, you get lots of scuffs, yeah. just everything starts to look a bit shit. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one of those really great little touches. It doesn't necessarily read on the movie, on the film, and it's not meant to really read on the film that that's this is real flagstone. Right? Like, it's, it's totally just, practical. We need this floor to last. What will last? The real thing this floor would have been made out of. That's what yeah, will we last. Could, we could paint it 50 million times, mm-hmm. or we could just use real flagstone. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing that I will mention that I think, you know, to somebody else might have been obvious, but sort of filled us both with surprise and delight was the recognition that each one of the animal characters in the films was in fact played by many, many animals. I know. It was so great. (laughs) This wonderful pin board that had pictures of all of the dogs that played Fang and all of the cats that played Mrs. Norris. And all of the owls that played Hedwig. And all of the cats that played um, Hermione Crookshanks. Crookshanks, yeah. Yeah. And then little bios of each of them, what their personalities were like and how they came to the trainers for for the movies and, you know, which ones worked in different kinds of scenes because, you know, 
one of the owls was trained specifically to sit on Daniel Radcliffe's arm and another one of the owls was trained specifically to carry things around and you know there was one Fang who was really good at sitting quietly in the background of scenes and another Fang that was much better at the action scenes and sort of that little insight into the animal actors and what's actually involved in having animals in movies was also really delightful. Yeah, that was really, really nice little touch. And again, one of those things that isn't that interactive, but you don't really think about how many dogs does it take to make one Fang. (laughs) Yeah, so then... At the very end, we exited back into the gift shop and uh, having spent four hours looking at beautifully designed objects, uh, were substantially less impressed by what they had available for (laughs) sale. And beautifully designed bespoke objects. Because I think what what really strikes you, uh, what really struck me anyway, walking through that gift shop a second time was that it was high quality, but it was mass produced high mm-hmm. quality. Yeah. And looking at things that were like, oh, this is it. This is the one, the one, this thing. This is the one costume, right? Yeah. That, that Dolores Umbridge actually wore. Yeah. And yeah. the real wand that she actually used yeah. versus this is the boxed version and everyone will be the same. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're all, you know, the version of the thing that you can own which is not the actual thing because we have 50 of them (laughs) yeah exactly all of a sudden after this tour has spent four hours convincing you that originalness i mean it's all about it's i i feel like i go back to benjamin too much on this podcast but but walter (laughs) benjamin's idea of the aura right right which is that the sort of the handmade individual thing has this aura of authenticity to it this specialness that's lost in mechanical reproduction and the tour is all about convincing you of the aura of these things it's all Mm. about saying no this one thing is really special this is the real the only the authentic original prop and then you get back into the gift shop and you're like well i don't want this mass-produced wand i want the one wand I don't want to copy. Yeah. Why would I want to copy? You just convinced me that copies are no good. Exactly. You kind of shot yourself in the foot there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. It was funny because I think we both had that experience of coming back and being like, no, I want the special things. Like, how did that experience change what you decided to buy? Because we both did buy things. It's not Mm. like we... We went into the gift shop at the end and went, I don't need your stupid merchandise. I'm mm-hmm. walking out of here. Like we both spent money and yeah. we both spent, I would say, non-trivial amounts of money mm-hmm. either. Like we didn't come out each just with, um, you know, like a bookmark or something. Yeah. We each we each spent money. Yeah. I think going in, I was more drawn to things, you know, I was thinking of getting a time turner. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking of you know, these things that are sort of reproductions of props. And I think coming out, I was more drawn to the art. And I think I would have bought sort of a poster or a work of art had there been more options. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't want the time turner anymore. I didn't want a wand. I didn't want, you know, the the sweater, notably the particular sweater I bought wasn't in the tour. But also, like, yeah, it's a copy of a particular sweater, but it's also a real sweater. (laughs) I feel like the sweater I bought is probably very, very close, as close as you can get to the actual sweater that they wore, Mm -hmm. 
which was also kind of a mass-produced thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I bought the cardigan that the kids wore as part of their Harry Potter Hogwarts uniform. Mm -hmm. And so that would have, they would have had to have, you know, 200 of those made Mm. for all of the different kids and all the different sizes. And so in my brain, it feels somehow, like, more real because it's kind of inherently... Even in the movie, even in the world, it's kind of inherently mass produced because it's something you'd be able to buy a school sweater. Yeah, exactly. And so it it feels somehow less like a prop and more like a real thing. That's such an yeah, yeah. That like I'm buying a copy of something that even in that world would have been mass produced anyway. Like this is just a sweater somebody was wearing. The piece of clothing, you know, it. It, you can't fake a piece of clothing. <laughs> yeah. It needs to actually work. <laughs> yeah. So we both left with sweaters. Um, mm-hmm. I left with a couple of other things, but I, I left with a magnet that is a small plastic reproduction of one of the um, proclamations. proclamations. Or yep, a proclamation yeah. against owning a copy of the Quibbler, which I thought was a good thing for a print <laughs> history scholar to own. That's put excellent. That, put that in my office somewhere. And uh I also left with a gift for Marcel, which I will not mention. Mm, it's really unlikely that Marcel's going to listen to this before I give it to her. In fact, <laughs> it's entirely possible. So I also left with a Hedwig t-shirt. Yeah, it was interesting that we both that we both just left with clothing. Um, maybe, yeah. it's just, maybe it's a sign. Maybe we over-theorize the hell out of it, and it's just a sign that we're old. Over-theorized? <laughs> I think we perfectly theorized. <laughs> Hannah, I would just like to uh, retroactively thank you for um, at one point during which, please, in a previous episode, you talked about how like the coveting of bespoke handmade items and general like hipsterdom with class performance, which has kind of ruined it a little bit for me. (laughs) But I still love it anyway. Every time I think I want that handmade thing, I'm like, but you're just performing classism. Like, (laughs) but I want it anyway. Listen. The thing is that self-awareness has never stopped any of us from doing anything. It's so if true. Self, and it's... If self-awareness made us better people, academics would be considerably better people than we are. I know it, but I don't care and I'm still going to do it. Yep. Still going to do it. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to make a whole podcast justifying it. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for for the visit and for the lovely tour company and for this great conversation thank you for coming all this way and hanging out with me for an afternoon that was super fun it was great it was really fun great you know i i only have one thing to say after that episode and it's uh you're welcome I really I, like I really like recording these closing segments. I was definitely listening along and feel like I was there. I definitely heard everything. <laughs> uh let's do the let's do the challenge stuff. Is that what we're doing? <coughs> okay. You have to announce it. Right. Uh <laughs> It's time for the Try Witches Tournament. I'm just kidding. And now it's time for the Try Witches Tournament. 
you all did a really great job. We have decided to uh, not follow through with our promise to shout out people because you all just did such a good job. And that's the lesson that when everyone does a good job, no one is special. (laughs) Sorry. There was this thing that people kept doing that I thought was really, really sweet and charming where people were like, shining, huh? Henceforth follows a thread of 78 people I love. (laughs) It's like, um, just amazing. It was amazing Mm -hmm. and beautiful and delightful. And I hope you all had a really good time and I hope some of you got shined upon. It's really lovely to see how many wonderful people you all have in your lives. That's really great. I was commenting to Marcel last night that uh, in the past month or so, the level of interaction and engagement on our Witch Please Twitter feed has increased really significantly to the point that we're both like, oh my god, oh there's so many, there's so many tweets. And I was like, oh yeah, we created this whole new segment to increase social media interaction. (laughs) We're great at this. We definitely knew what we were getting into. Eventually we're going to have a a challenge, which is something like build a house. (laughs) (laughs) So that makes it easier. Your try wishes challenge. Cold fusion. So our new challenge, and this is not at all going to solve the problem of um, a million of you delightfully responding on Twitter, but um, I feel pretty comfortable with this. So our challenge for this episode is to treat yourself. Not yourself. I'm, I, no, just yourself. Treat non-copyright infringing. Treat yourself. Mm-hmm. Do something nice for yourself in whatever form that takes, and then let us know what that thing is. So if anybody if anybody listening hasn't seen the television program Parks and Recreation, where the treat yourself comes from, what they do is every year, a couple of these characters get together and they have an entire day called Treat Yourself Whatever the Year Is. So it's like, treat yourself 2013. Three words for you. Treat yourself. Treat yourself 2011. Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year. It's really very delightful. Anyway, and so the whole point of it is just to like, whatever makes you feel good, like, like do that thing for you. You don't need to make excuses for it. Whatever it is that would make you feel good you should do it. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll book myself a haircut. Just follow your heart. What about you, Hannah? What are you going to do? Oh, it's really, it's hard to say because I'm a deeply self-indulgent person already. (laughs) It's a problem. It's hard to treat yourself when you're self-indulgent the whole year round. So do a thing for you and then tell us what you did. Let's go. Next segment. Great. Which please tell me. Yeah. Go. Take it away, Todd. Which please, which please, make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Which please, which please, make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. So this week we have decided to answer the question posed by Cat V. McGuire, also known as Resting Witch Face on Twitter. Resting Witch Face wants to know, I have a burning Witch Please Tell Me question. Do house elves not do laundry? How do they pick up the clothes? 
So a bunch of you have been answering this already, but we decided to do this one anyway because it's a really great question. So we've been we've been talking about it for a couple of days, which is more than we normally spend <laughs> talking through these questions. And we have gone back to the source material and we have discovered that what frees Dobby is ambiguously phrased. Mm-hmm. So in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Harry stuffs Tom Riddle's diary into a disgusting old sock of his and gives it to Lucius Malfoy. Lucius Malfoy pulls the sock off and it says in the book, tosses it aside. But Dobby in the book catches it and says, Master has given Dobby a sock. So based on textual evidence alone... Lucius Malfoy had zero intention of giving him the sock, but Dobby was under the impression that Lucius had given him the sock. And so that's where things get tricky, because when we were talking about it initially, we thought, okay, well, like, if Lucius Malfoy pulls the sock off and throws it at Dobby and is like, here, take this, then that's very clear. He very clearly gives it to him. But that's not, that's not exactly what happens. Yeah. yeah. So this gets complicated when, when we're asking the question of, like, intentionality and whether it matters that Lucius meant to give him the sock and Dobby meant to catch it because later on in book five, Hermione, in an attempt to free the house elves against their will, is leaving hand-knit clothing scattered around the Gryffindor common room, sort of hidden under things so that the house elves will pick it up by accident and get freed by accident. And that plus the Lucius and Dobby scene implies that freeing a house elf is a thing that could happen by accident all the time, anytime a house elf touches an article of clothing, and that becomes pretty absurd. But when we look at the textual evidence in book five, it's also quite vague. So when Dobby is talking to Harry about the clothes being left around the common room, he says that Winky still does not care for clothes. And then he says, nor do the other house elves. None of them will clean Gryffindor Tower anymore, not with the hats and socks hidden everywhere. They find them insulting, sir. Dobby does it all himself. So that, again, doesn't actually say they are freaked out because they'll be freed against their will, but rather that they are insulted by it because clothes are sort of the signifier of something that they don't want. Mm -hmm. Um, Winky is the only example that we have of a house elf who's freed against her will and it's done as a punishment. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be something at work here in the magic of how a house elf is freed that has to do with the house elf's own desire. That it worked differently for Dobby because he wanted so badly to be free. Mm -hmm. And that because he understood what Lucius was doing as handing him an article of clothing that effectively functioned as though Lucius had intentionally freed him. Mm -hmm. But for other elves who do not want to be free and who, whose masters do not want them to be free, it would make sense that they would be able to just throw them articles of clothing that were dirty laundry Mm -hmm. and that that wouldn't have the same effect. Right? Like in, in book four, when Crouch frees Winky, he says, to her this means clothes and so I wonder because we don't actually see the scene where he does free her I wonder if there's something about the house elves obligation to accept the clothes because up until the point where they are freed they still have to do everything that their master says Mm -hmm. and so if Winky is under the obligation to accept the clothing Mm -hmm. um, 
it makes sense then that the master of the house elf can free them uh-huh. when they don't want to be freed. Mm, but Hermione, Hermione, Hermione is not the master of these house elves. Mm-hmm. Only the, Hog, the Hogwarts headmaster mm-hmm. can free the mm-hmm. house elves, right? So I don't know. And then I keep like I keep coming back to this idea of like if I find a hundred dollars on the street that somebody has left there, that isn't a gift to me, right? Yeah. Like like I haven't been given that hundred dollars. But if you like throw a one hundred dollar bill up in the air and I catch it, like and I get to keep it. Like I for sure. I mean, <laughs> in both cases, I get to keep it because finders keepers. <laughs> But um, I don't know. It's ambiguous. I think the point is that it's ambiguous. But I think it's very clear that Hermione can't free the house elves. She is not their master. She doesn't get to make that decision. Um, And the reason that they're not cleaning the Gryffindor common room is because they're insulted. Like, that's just offensive. She's being shitty. Thank goodness for Dobby. Yeah. So I think, you know, the interesting thing watching the way that people have been discussing it on Twitter is that the instinct is to assume that Hermione has interpreted correctly. I understand where that instinct comes from because Hermione is often right and does her research. Um, But it does really seem like in this case she has misunderstood how house elves work and that she has sort of misunderstood, you know, she is really sure that the house elves are all like Dobby, just waiting for an opportunity to be freed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is also, there's lots of ways that we can interpret what's going on there with the house elves. That's, you know, we're going to have more conversations about that in the future, hopefully. But, um, what seems quite clear is that however we want to interpret it, Hermione is wrong about how leaving clothing scattered around will affect the house elves and that they're avoiding it not because it will force them to become free elves, but because clothing is a sign of something that they don't want mm-hmm. and it is insulting to them that she is trying to trick them in this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then the, the, um, the second part of that question is who does the laundry? Um, and so I think... Like, it could be that the house elves do do the laundry, but it might also be that they don't do laundry in the way that muggles do laundry, right? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe they just scourgeify. They just learn a spell yeah. in first year that yeah. they use to clean their robes, yeah. and then they that's how they clean them. Yeah. Probably stinky. But house elves have all kinds of magic, and magic that is not the same as wizard magic and mm-hmm. witch magic, so... You know, who knows how they are actually doing it, but an assumption that they are doing laundry by, like, picking up clothes and carrying them doesn't seem in keeping with the magical nature of the house elf. Mm-hmm. So probably they have a spell. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yeah. Mm, God. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because the muggle in me just wants to know. Thanks, dear listeners, for joining us for Season 2, Episode 4 of Which Please. The rest of our episodes are, as always, available at ohwitchplease.ca. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. And don't forget to check out our merch at society6.com slash ohwitchplease. You can find that through the link on our website. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support, and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? We will be back in two weeks with a very special, recorded entirely in one location, old school episode featuring everybody's favorite guy with a film degree. But until then, later, witches.